The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. <clears throat> Today is the 26th of March 2019 and um, the Tasha topic for tonight, um, which was suggested to me um, yesterday, is um, uh, overwhelm and other reflective emotions. Um, a person wrote just talking about um, experiencing this, this sense of overwhelm and, and feeling swamped uh, at, when looking at all the things in the world that, that need to be done. Um, so many needs in the world. And this person asks, how do we keep our hearts and minds wide open and manage the feelings of helplessness and inadequacy that arise? Um, when I first saw this, which was, was an email headed Tato topic suggestion, I think I thought to myself, no, I can't, I can't give a talk on that because I, I don't have an answer really. Um, I quite often feel quite overwhelmed and hopeless and inadequate myself. Um, and sometimes even a kind of sense of panic arises in me. And, and um, when, it, when that happens, I can't really do very much. I, you know, there's this sense of, of um, a kind of fear around my true inadequacy being revealed to all. Um, and and it, when when I when it really grabs me, then I just have to remind myself that it will pass. Uh, maybe you know, just let it sort of work its way out of my body because it is felt as a as a bodily sensation. Um, the other the other effort that 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 um, sometimes it's possible to make is just to to see the emotion rather than getting caught up and seeing the world through it, which is very different. So just being aware of it, you know, see what it feels like in the body, what, if, what, if, what I'm telling myself in my mind. Um, but I think that, the, that all kinds of um, strong emotions are likely to have come up for people over the past 10 or 11 days. Um, starting with with the the massacre in, in Christchurch and we, we talked about this in, in other talks and and then on that same day the, the school strike um, all around the world for um, action on the on the climate crisis and just in the last couple of days there have been more distressing uh, pieces of news um, people may have heard about the in Mali where there's been a massacre and 134 people killed. And somehow, having just experienced this in our own country, it, it made it so much more real um, when, we, um, when we rang the bell on, on Friday 50 times. It was like we got a sense in our body of what it meant for 50 people to die all at once and violently. And you think of the, 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 the circles of friends and family around, around each of those 50 people. And here in this massacre in Mali, 134 people killed, each one with um, family members, friends. 
many connections. And in this particular um, attack, uh, the the people who were killed were Muslims. They were accused of jihadi connections, but many in fact were women and children. And there's a sense when you hear about these things, how of, of dread that they will they will turn into into cycles of violence. Underneath, or perhaps alongside the the uh, conflict over jihadi connections, um, is the fact that the Fulani, um, this minority, are herders of cattle, and the people who attack them, the Dogon, are farmers. So beneath or alongside the the, the um, sort of political uh, overtones of this is a fight over land and water. Somehow we come back to these and into um, the the role that climate plays in them. There's also the news from Mozambique um, and Zimbabwe and Malawi, those Mozambique has been worst hit uh, by uh, incredible flooding that has created this vast internal lake. about 600,000 people have been displaced and um, estimates about um, 750 killed across the three three countries. So um, there are so many things that we hear and um, that, can, that can give rise into us with these feelings of, of, of hopelessness or powerlessness or not knowing how to respond. And that, that was certainly, I think, certainly the case after the, the massacre. And we were, we were kind of helped and guided by our prime minister in terms of how to, to, to respond, to, to open our hearts, to, to um, make contact with uh, the Muslim community. And uh, it has been quite extraordinary to see that, but it is also a reminder how, how much um, it's needed that we do this. Um, especially as we go deeper into the climate crisis. Um, David Loy, who's a, who's a Zen teacher and a writer and an activist, um, his, uh, a new book has come out of his where he talks about what, how to respond to the crisis we're in. And at one point he talks about um, how Dharma groups often, um, they just get together to sit, maybe to have tea at the end of the sitting, um, but to to build a deeper sense of community, there needs to be a bit more than that in terms of what we how we know each other, so that when when things get tough, when things go go badly, we really have the the connections that will enable us to stand by each other, to look after each other, and so um, I'm hoping tonight we'll have time to to just to break into small groups to talk about some of this stuff. Um, um, as a way of, of, um, of deepening our connections and learning more about each other. I think it's fair to say that many, fi- many people find that it's not so easy to be real about our emotions. It can be hard, um, besides the fact that we have our kind of Kiwi reticence, um, I think it's fair to say that we, we get... We get um, um, certain messages from our tradition that um, may reinforce that reticence in the sense that um, uh, 
we don't get a lot of very specific um, instruction on how to deal with um, afflictive or difficult emotions. Um, Zen can seem, and I think it's the fault probably of the way it's taught to some degree, can seem to emphasize only the heroic and the transcendent. Um, we hear the stories of the masters and their students and maybe we, we see mostly the, the master's side of things and um, we long to be like those masters who, who seem to us sort of free and spontaneous and unperturbed and, and really like spiritual hero, heroes often um, with, a, with a, a macho kind of overtone as we've been exploring as we look at some of the stories about women in Zen and other traditions. But, but because we're trying to live up to this uh, our ideal that we have about what it is to be a Zen person, then that, that can create, there can be a big gap between how we feel and how we think we should feel and as somebody put it, I couldn't find the source of this, but I know I read it recently. Um, he he described the situation we could get can get into as um, carrying the world on our shudyas. Very very painful that to be caught up in in, in our shudyas. This isn't, this isn't um, a new problem. Um, Master Yuan Wu, who was writing in the Song Dynasty, um, he, he, said, he said, no one recognizes the sweating horses of the past. They only want to emphasize the achievement crowning the age. And so when we read these, these Zen stories, the koans, we, we see the master and who's got mastery. Um, and we don't, he's the one we know, and often it is a he, mostly it's a he. Uh, we want to emulate and we, 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 so we forget all the, the um, hundreds and hundreds of, of um, practitioners who were struggling away not yet having realized themselves fully, the sweating horses, struggling with all kinds of afflictive emotions. And when I, when I sat down and thought of it, I realized that actually there's, there's all kinds of human frailty in the koans if we look more closely. Pride, shame, anger, fear, arrogance, all kinds of things. There's one koan uh, example that, that particularly is particularly apt for our uh, topic, um, which I've given various tashas on over the years. Um, Dai Zui's, it goes along with everything else. A monk asked, a monk asked Dai Zui, when the conflagration at the end of the Kalpa sweeps through and the great cosmos is destroyed, I wonder, is this one destroyed or not? Daizui said, it will be destroyed. The monk said, will it be gone with everything else? And Daizui said, it will be gone with everything else. This is, this is an apt one for us tonight because it's, he, this monk is expressing his fear of of 
annihilation, not just dying himself, but of everything being destroyed in the conflagration at the end of the Kalpa, which was the Buddhist, standard Buddhist cosmology, was that we go through cycles, and there's a cycle of the world coming into an existence, one of it enduring, and then one of it being destroyed, and then there's an empty cycle, part of the cycle, and then the whole thing starts again. So this monk is asking for some kind of reassurance, some, some, um, something to allay his fears, but this, the master doesn't give him any, uh, anything, not even a scrap of encouragement. He just says that it, it will go along with everything else. The it, of course, is referring to his true nature. He's, he's hoping that that, that the something, the something, maybe something immaterial that 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 remains but he's given no reassurance there's another koan um, in the, from the Mumon Khan where Mumon seems to say the exact opposite he says you cannot describe it you cannot picture it you can never praise it fully stop all your groping and maneuvering there is nowhere to hide your true self. When the world is annihilated, it remains indestructible. So who's right? Is it Daizui or Mumon? So just before we, we um, get into groups to talk about this, I just want to read a few um, passages from um, a, a blog post that I got a couple of days ago, um, which addresses this possibility of human um, annihilation, human extinction. It's by a, um, a guy called Jim Bendel, and he started a new kind of movement we could could say called deep adaptation and um, what this refers to and I quote from his article here deep adaptation refers to the personal and collective changes that might help us to pre prepare for and live with a climate induced collapse of our societies Unlike mainstream work on adaptation to climate change, it doesn't assume that our current economic, social and political systems can be resilient in the face of rapid climate change. Um, it goes on to say that um, he and, and his followers kind of that w see in the in the evidence the climate climate evidence that that we may be at the beginning of um, runaway heat warming and he says we consider this process to be inevitable because of, of our view that humanity will not be able to respond globally fast enough to protect our food supplies from chaotic weather people who consider that societal collapse or breakdown is either possible, likely, or already unfolding, are also interested in deep adaptation. So even if we, if we don't think he's right, 
um, many of us probably realize that it's possible that he's right. We don't know and we, we can't know the future exactly. Things can shift suddenly. There can be, there can be um, these kind of um, sea changes among people. Um, and certainly we have to continue doing everything we can as much as possible um, to reduce all the many different human activities that are destroying our biospheres in so many different ways and to, to, to speak out where we can. But perhaps we would be better off if we don't avoid the fact that it is possible that, we, um, that humanity won't come out of this and that that um, we will, our, our lives and the lives of all other beings on this planet will be will be deeply compromised by what we're doing they already are and and then he talks in this in his in in this piece about um, questions that they've developed in order, order to guide them in their work with deep adaptation. And um, I've put a couple of these on the little slips of paper we have for people when they go into discussion groups. He's, he lists these as uh, four, and they all begin with R. Resilience. What do we most value that we want to keep and how? Relinquishment. What do we need to let go of so as not to make matters worse? Restoration. What could we bring back to help with these difficult times? And reconciliation. With what and whom shall we make peace as we awaken to our mutual mortality? So they're good questions to ask. He talks later in the in the article about about how uncertainty and lack of control uh, are um, key aspects of uh, the predicament we're in um, now that, that we've created through our through our um, disconnect from the from our na the natural world and it's it's f functioning. And these two, um, uncertainty and lack of control, are two of the things that humans hate the most and struggle with the most. But they are part and parcel of, of the, the, the fix we're in and we've put everything else on the planet in. He writes, one thing that rapid climate change can help us to learn is the destructiveness of our delusions about reality and what is important in life. Key to this delusion is the emphasis many of us place on our separate identities. Since birth, we have been invited to other people and nature. We often assume other people to be less valuable, smart, or ethical as us. And here we see how this connects into um, uh, white supremacy and what's happened to our um, Muslim community and suffering this attack. 
Why were they ignored when they brought their, their concerns about something like this happening to government? Meeting after meeting, somehow the concerns were not seen by people. Since birth we have invited to, been invited to other people and nature. We often assume other people to be less valuable, smart or ethical as us or we assume we know what they think. We justify that in many ways, using stories of nationality, gender, morals, personal survival, or simply being too busy. And we could add in here race, religion. Similarly, we have been encouraged to see nature as separate from us. Therefore, we have not regarded the rivers, soils, forests, and fields as part of ourselves. Taken together, this othering of people and nature means we dampen any feelings of connection or empathy to such a degree that we can justify exploitation, discrimination, hostility, violence, and rampant consumption. But when we stop othering people and nature, then, and we start to feel the sadness, um, the, the loss, when we start to mourn and despair, that could be seen as something healthy. He continues, the suffering of others presents us with an opportunity to feel and express love and compassion, not to save or to fix, but to be open to sensing the pain of all others and letting that transform how we live in the world. It does not need to lead to paralysis or depression, but to being fully present to life in every moment, however it manifests. This approach is the opposite of othering and arises from a loving mindset where we experience universal compassion to all beings. It is the love that our climate predicament invites us to connect with. One, just one last paragraph before we, we go into our groups. As this topic involves questions of mortality, impermanence, insecurity and uncontrollability, everyone who is finding themselves navigating their way through this is experiencing many strong emotional responses, which may feel turbulent, overwhelming, exhausting, as well as energizing or enlivening. Often these emotions affect us, including ourselves and our colleagues, in ways that we may not be aware of. So this is just something to be aware of um, in terms of um, navigating this stuff, being, being ready to go into unknown territory, and that might be quite creative. He lists, again, lists three kind of principles, uh, which are return to compassion, return to curiosity, and return to respect. So from a, from a meditation point of view, 
This is not only compassion for um, the people we meet, the beings that we encounter, but um, compassion, curiosity, respect for our own painful emotions. To, To first of all welcome them and the thoughts that go with them, recognize them, hold them up to the light, so to speak. And when, when we say hold them, that doesn't mean cling to them, but perhaps hold them the way you would hold a baby. Somebody once said, hush your thoughts as if comforting a baby. And perhaps also um, remind ourselves that, that really we own nothing and yet at the same time we're made of everything. Well, um, we'll stop here and recite the four vows and then um, we can just go to three locations. We'll have one group meet in here, another in the dining area, and a third one in the back room. And um, So it's about five, five per group if everybody stays, or a bit less if, if people have to leave immediately. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.org. Dot org
www.kinderkreis.org.nz